The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Think about what it is exactly that God is trying to say to you. I want to ask you a question before we get there. What is the worst sin that could possibly be committed in all the world? Have you ever thought about that before? What is the worst sin? Is it is it murder? Is it is it is it is it uh, uh, say rape? Is it is it war? Is it unjust war? Is it lying? Is it stealing? Is it is it saying you're one thing and doing another? And what is the most deadly sin in all the world? You, I mean, you just ever thought to stop to think about that? Yes. And, and, and the answer, and Tina, you get the daily double today, right? You get, you get the word. It is. It is it, the worst sin you could ever commit it is a root of unbelief. It's not believing Jesus is, is who he said he was. I mean, you can commit a lot of terrible things in this world, and they're all bad. They're all grievous. But the Bible is very clear that if you have any knowledge about who Jesus is, and you don't act on that knowledge, that is the worst sin you could ever commit. It's often called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It is taking what God said and making it common. It's taking the holiness of God and making it mundane. And Spurgeon said it this way, the great Baptist preacher. He said, quote, if you could roll all the sins into one big mess and unite them to all one vast globe of corruption, they would not all be equal. Because even then, the sin of unbelief is the monarch sin. It is the mixture of a venom of all crimes. It is the chief work of the devil. It is the A1 sin. Not A1 barbecue sauce, by the way. Some of y'all thinking that way. He said it is a masterpiece of Satan. What is the number one worst sin? It's knowing about Jesus and not trusting him for what he said. This is what John 3.18 says, as you'll see. It says, whoever believes in him, this is Jesus speaking on the heels of John 3.16. And it'll be up on the screen for you. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only what? Son of God. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Look, those who reject the truth of the Bible don't have a head problem. They have a what? A heart problem, don't they? The deadly sin here is something about unbelief. And to reject the gospel is to fall away. To reject the gospel is to apostatize. To reject the gospel is to trample underfoot the blood of Christ and crucify him again and again and again and again. So how does willful sinning threaten a person? How does unbelief lead someone to go down this road? And that's where our big idea comes in. If you have your your, your bulletin, you can see that on the front there is that true saving faith isn't for those who behave, but for those who believe in the risen Jesus. Because Jesus, it's not for those who try, but those who wholly trust in him. Look, many are going to miss, you've heard that old phrase, right? Many will miss heaven by 18 inches because they have it in their head, but they've never accepted it in their heart. It's those who know Christ, but don't know him. They know about him, but they don't know him. Some have confidence in the gospel, but they do not have a commitment to the gospel. Some, you can say, have been enlightened by the truth, verse 32, but they haven't embraced the truth. Some have been convicted of sin, but they've never been converted from their sin. 
And some have come to church without coming to Christ. They have their toes at the narrow gate. And the gate is wide, ready for them to come in. Not wide for destruction, but wide for their entrance to go through the narrow gate. And they just simply say, oh, I don't want that stuff, and walk away. So this morning, four admonitions for those not fully committed to Christ. If you're a Christian here today, this is the way you can pray for other non-Christians. If you're here today and you are walking the fence, I pray these show you what it means to walk with Jesus Christ. The first admonition, the first thing the writer of Hebrews says can be found in verses 32 and 34. It's called look back, look back. You notice there in verse 32 that he tells you to remember. He tells you in verse 32 to remember or recall the former days. What is he saying here? Now, let me be clear. I'm going to say something that may surprise you. and Hear me out on this. It is not a sentimental thing that he's trying to recall people to remember. You say, well, Darren, we just had a 60th anniversary. We were very sentimental last week. That's okay. There's a purpose and a place for that in Scripture, right? We should celebrate what God has done amongst his people. That's not what he's talking about here. He's calling back these people who are towing the line but not committing to Christ to remember the former days. Recall the former days. What are those former days? It's to think back. When they had first come into a church and heard the word of God. Christian, do you remember that day for you? For some of you, you were not, well, for some of you, I'm looking back at a baby here. I won't say the name as we're online, but some of us are like a month old when we first came to church. Or we were in the womb when we first came to church. How many of y'all have been Baptist since before you were born? Yes. Baptist from belly to belly to whatever age you are, and I'll let you define what age you are. Some of you grew up in the womb in a Baptist church or a Christian church. But some of you started coming to church for the first time when you were an adult. Whatever it is, he calls them back to remember that time, to remember the time when they officially became to a church where the church was preached. And he tells them, remember a call, look back, look back. Why? Because when you first heard about the grace of God, do you remember what you felt? Some of you maybe rejected the gospel the first time you probably did. But as people started sharing it with you and sharing it with you, you say, wow, this actually makes sense. This actually is coming To truth. And at one point, what verse 32 says about these people happened to you as well. Notice it says, recall the former days when after you were enlightened. No, Paul's not a Buddhist. No, Paul's not a Hindu. This isn't some Eastern religion mystic thing like at a coffee shop where you all snap your fingers when they read the poem kind of thing. That's not what we're talking about. The enlightenment here is literally you came into the fellowship not saved, but you heard about the Lord. And it gnawed on you. And you you never heard that word before. You never heard the gospel before. And something about you wanted to change so badly. And you came to hear the truth that was shining. Hebrews 6, 4 reminds us that these people had once been enlightened. And those former days, they had heard the gospel. I mean, haven't you had a friend before that you invited to church and maybe they came with you to a study or a service or a special event And you just knew if you got them there, they would become a Christian. And then you go home from the event and nothing changed. They were the same. You were sad, but nothing changed. You asked them, how did it go? And people were nice. They were Baptists. The food was great, right? But, But nothing changed. They had a knowledge of truth in their head, but they never accepted it in their heart. What he's telling them is, you need to look back. If you're towing this line and you've not come to Christ, you need to look back and remember that you heard the gospel. What most people would die to hear, you have now heard. 
What most people have come to hear, you are now hearing. And that's why, if you're here today and you've not come to Jesus, can I just tell you today, you don't need 101 proofs to believe the Bible. You don't need 75 reasons why Jesus came back from the dead. You don't need any apologetics. You need to go back to the gospel, that Jesus died for you and cares for you and loves you. That's what it is. And he goes on to say, not only did they do this, they heard the gospel, they were enlightened, their senses spiritually were alert, but they endured a hard struggle with sufferings. I want you to picture this for a while. These people are not Christians, but they think they are. And they're willing to suffer with Christians even through hard struggles. And you know what most people are doing at this point? They're identifying them as Christians. Look, that's why some of the hardest people to reach in churches around the nation are church members. Did you know that? There's a reason at this church we have sought very diligently to reach out to members. Because just because your name is on that roll doesn't mean you're any more saved than anyone else who has not heard the gospel before. Because you need to know that there is a time and a place where it's going to get real tough for Christians to be Christians. And the weight of what it means to be a Christian is going to be weighing on all these people. And these people lost a lot of things. You're going to see what they lost. We read it. Verse 32, they were exposed with sufferings. Sometimes, verse 33, they were publicly exposed. People were coming to them and ridiculing them. They were calling them out. They were being socially outcast and ostracized. They suffered a hard struggle. They'd become so identified with the fellowship of the church that other people thought they were Christians too. They were those that Jesus says in Revelation 3 that you were not hot, you were not cold, you were lukewarm, and I, sorry, I don't want to be gross with this, but I spew you out of my mouth. I hate worlds of fun rides. <laughs> Do you know why? Because my head... We were at the uh, Liberty Fall Fest last year, my wife and I, and I do not take spinny things really well, and she, she does better than I do. I don't know about you. I don't care how much water I drink. I don't care how many things I do. After a while, when you're on those rides, does your head just start to hurt? Is it, is it an age thing or just – I don't know. But sometimes – Willie, when I served as a youth pastor, one of the hardest days for me was World of Fun Day because my head would hurt when we'd go on the merry-go-round, right? On the carousel, my head would start hurting. And then they'd put me on the mamba and the, all those things. And by the end of the day, I was just doing this back and forth. And several times, not to be gross, I had to find a bush or a bathroom quickly to go get it out of the system. You get the imagery of what Jesus is saying. You can walk the line as a Christian. You can be amongst the people. You can identify yourself with them. You can suffer with them. You can do all these things. But if you've never come to Christ, he someday will spew you out of his mouth. Verse 33 continues. They not only were publicly identified and exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Their families had dismissed them. Their inner circles had dismissed them. But sometimes they were partnered with other Christians. There was character defamation. There was assassination. There was physical harm, financial harm. There was loss. They did this because they thought themselves Christians. How crazy that is. I mean, if you had a chance to get out of Dodge and not suffer, you would probably take the, the, the get out of the suffering card if you could. That phrase there being publicly exposed is the word we get, the word for theater. They literally were on stage. They were a spectacle. They had a part to play. 
They were referred to as by the gladiators. The Christians were the spectacles in the arena. All these people were willing to suffer for something they didn't truly even believe. It's crazy. And verse 34 goes on to say that these people who knew the truth but hadn't accepted the truth went so far as to suffer publicly, but also, verse 34, they had compassion on those in prison. They had, they had empathy with all those in prison. And they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. And they, but they knew that, I'm going to stop right there. What is the modern equivalent of this? This is a church member who serves on committees, who shows up at church, who does all the things that a Christian's supposed to do, but is as wicked inside as Hitler was when he was at the height of his power. They know the truth, but they're not committed to the truth. They sign up for everything. They do it because it's tradition. They do it because that's what they've always done, but they don't know the truth. That's what the modern equivalent of this is. Or a small town where you knock on every door and you ask, are you saved? Do you know Jesus Christ? And everyone in the town says, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. 100% of people are going to heaven in every small town in most churches, in most places in America. Did you know that? Oh, hogwash. That is not true. Just because you profess to know Jesus does not mean you are a Christian. They did everything right. They identified with the church. They became church members of this fellowship. They served for every committee. They suffered when they were suffering. They gave to the poor. But they did not know Jesus Christ. Be very, very careful that you are not basing your salvation based on the bootstraps of what you're doing in the name of whatever church you're serving at. It gets real, real fast in here, doesn't it? But here's the crazy part. Even though they could look back and see all that they did for the church even and Christ, even though they weren't among the Christian people, spiritually speaking, they were physically. Look at the end of verse 34. They knew this since they knew that they had a better possession and an abiding one. They were so deluded into thinking that everything they were doing was getting themselves rewards in heaven when they themselves did not know the greatest reward in heaven, Jesus Christ, by faith alone and Christ alone. Do you see how you can miss that? Religion does not save you. Jesus does. The greatest cloud, and I'll say it again, the greatest cloud we have put on all the minds around America is that if you raise your hand, and sincerely pray a prayer called the sinner's prayer. You go to the back of your Bible and find the date and time the pastor or evangelist told you to put in there that you got saved so that when Satan comes to you and says, hey, do you, uh, you're not a Christian, you can go back and say, oh, but at this time, at this event, I became a Christian. We pick on a lot of other religions for doing superstitious things. But we have some of the most superstitious people in the Protestant religion that you ever know. I'll walk an aisle. I'll pray a prayer. I'll, 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 I'll go to the pastor. I'll, I'll serve on committees. If I just do enough stuff, I'll get to heaven. No, you need to deal with Jesus is what you need to do. And if you're a Christian here today, you can look back and say, praise God. It's not me. It's all him. Look at your life and thank the Lord that someone said it's not that stuff. It's Christ. And what a great thing that is. Look, I believe most people in this room right now are saved. I really do. I've, I've, our family's been here long enough. I've had deep conversations with most of you in this room. And I believe our fellowship to be mostly saved. But I also know that I am not God and I don't know every heart. And I just plead with you, if you've been playing religion in the name of whatever it is, that you stop it and you seek Jesus. 
Amen? And he goes on. He tells him not only to look back, and, and Amy, I apologize. You can go ahead and put up the next phrase. I was on target, and I, I'll do that. And I'm going to repeat something I said a couple months ago because I want you to get it again. Cultural Christianity is dying. Cultural Christianity defined as those people who go to church because it's the good thing to do is dying, guys. It's not only dying in the Midwest, it's dying in the South, it's dying everywhere. You're either a Christian or you're not. There's no faking it anymore. Do you know him or do you not? Kids in this room, including my own kids, if you're under the age of 18 this morning, I want to say a special word to you. We're so glad you're here. So glad you're here. But boys and girls, I just want to tell you something. You're not, you are not a Christian just because mommy and daddy's a Christian or your grandma or grandpa who's with you. You're a Christian because you accept Jesus. You turn to Jesus when it's time. And I say that to my kids. I said to all the kids in here, or even the big kids. We got some big kids in here too, all right? You all know who you are. But it's Jesus or not. No faking it anymore. Don't you hate when people are fake with you? Come on, don't you hate that? You hate when people say one thing and do another? If you're really a Christian, then act like it. Live by it, by God's grace. He says, look back. That's the longer point. Secondly is this. He says, look ahead. He's calling them not only to look back about what God had done for them, verses 32, 34. He's also saying, verse 35 and 36, to look ahead. He says, therefore, based on all those verses, do not throw away your confidence. What's he saying? He's saying confidence is the power of Christ to save. They had confidence in their mind that they were saved, but he's telling them not to throw out the opportunity to be saved by faith alone. They don't have the truth in their hearts. He says, don't throw away your confidence, which is a great reward. What is the reward? The reward is is that you get to be in heaven with Jesus forever. The reward is, is that no matter what happens in this life, come hell or high water, if you're a Christian, you get to be forgiven of all your sin, free from this life, free from the entanglements of this life. Oh, come, Lord Jesus, come. There is heaven. There is a redeemed with the ages. There's all these things. But he tells them, you have a need of endurance. You have a need of endurance, not to carry on in the Christian life, but to go all the way to Christ. Y'all know I'm a Missouri football fan. Dave, here comes reference number one for sports. Hey, Paul was a sports fan. Leave me alone. He's talked about sports all the time. If you watched the Missouri football game yesterday, you probably just said, that's another Mizzou football game. They lost the game when they should have won it in kicking a field goal at the end of regulation. But it's Missouri, and it's football, and Kansas has more wins than Missouri. I think the return of Jesus is closer than we know, right? Uh, That's a bad joke. But what he's telling him here is don't throw away your confidence. You have a need of endurance. It's like a football player getting to the one-yard line, getting to the one-yard line and lining up and deciding to punt. You know the football rules. That's about the most – that's the, that's the dumbest thing you can ever do. You don't get to the one-yard line of your enemy territory about the score and punt the ball. I mean you can do that. It's not illegal to do that. But everyone's going to be looking at you like – what, who are you? What did you do with the real people? And bring them back, please. He's telling them to press on to the narrow gate. You have a need of endurance. Look ahead. You know that there's a day coming when you will stand in judgment. When, when you will stand before this God. Do not throw away your confidence. 
Even though you suffered with the people of God, you've not come to God. You need endurance to believe the gospel. Pray that God does not take that away. And if you're here today, the great news is, is that, is that we have loved ones, friends, parents, kids, in-laws that are just like this. Do not give up on reaching them. Don't give up on them. We never know until someone's dead and in the casket or in the urn if they are of the Lord. I believe in heaven we will be surprised by people who are in heaven that we thought not there. And we'll equally be surprised by people we thought would be there that are not. If you have one like these people who know the truth, who had a full knowledge of the truth, but haven't come to know Jesus, then I want you to remember something. And Amy will put this up. No person is so bad off in their sin and beyond the grace of God where his power cannot reach them. If you have one like this who knows it all but doesn't come to Christ, reach out to them in love. Don't give up on them. You pray for them. There may be a time, biblically speaking, where you have to do the proverbial uh, shake the dust off and walk to the next town sort of thing. But the next witness in prayer is that they will be amongst the weak. They will be with us. Please don't give up on those in your life who've yet to come to Christ. If this has been reading your mail and your heart today, can I just encourage you once more that God is making known to you the path of salvation today. You have to be true to your own heart on this in that it doesn't matter what anyone else says. Is God making known to you today the gospel? Is he making known to you that you need to come to Christ? That's why he tells them. You're in need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. What is the will of God? What is the will of God? It's that you would know him, that you would know about him, that you would follow him, that you would, you would, you would believe in him, and you would receive what is promised. What's received mean? It means you received eternal life. And so, friends, if God, through the Holy Spirit and the writer of Hebrews Christian, is calling these people who have a head knowledge but haven't come all the way to Christ to keep on seeking Christ, how much more patience do we need for those who've yet to come to Jesus? How easily we write people off in our lives. I don't mind telling you, I have two brothers, older brothers, I don't speak of them much, who are wayward. They walk the aisle at a church. They've been baptized in a church, but they know not Jesus Christ. How do I know that? Because the fruit of their lives and the denial of their lives, they've denied Christ, they've spit in Christ's faith, they've walked out. They were great. They were in every youth group event. They were in everything. But I can tell you, it wasn't the faithfulness of the pastor that grew up with them, that sharing the gospel with them. They rejected Jesus Christ. They are these people. I've shared with you my father, who had a, a heart issue about a month ago, and we didn't know what was going to happen with him. Is not a Christian. He'll turn 72 in, in just about three months. He's heard the gospel all his life. He's in this boat. We all have someone, don't we? Don't give up on him. Keep praying for him. If the writer of Hebrews encourages them to keep going, how much more should we keep going on their behalf before God until they reject or accept Christ fully? Look back, look ahead. He tells them thirdly to look to look up. That's right. Whoever said that is correct. To look up. Look at verse 37. He says in verse 37, For yet a little while the coming one will come and he will not delay. Who's he talking about here? Who's the coming one? It's Jesus. Yes, he's coming again. 
Notice that he says, in a little while. He doesn't say, when the prophecy calendar is correct. Guys, at this point, there is no prophecy left for Jesus to come. He just needs to come back. Look, there is Jesus coming. It could be today. It could be right now. And you can't be a fence sitter. You can't put one foot in the world and one foot out. He who's coming. Who is it? Verse 25 said, we read a few weeks ago, the day is drawing near. It's getting closer. What is drawing near? There's an urgency here. Christ is coming. There's a, uh, he's taking two quotes and putting them together here. Isaiah 26, 20, yet in a little while. And then Habakkuk 2, 3, it will not delay. I remind you of the great song. We didn't sing it. But when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I, may I be, and be in him be found, faultless before, to stand before the throne. That old hymn. Yet a very little while. The literal translation here, you're missing one very in the Greek. It is a very, very little while. He is coming. He doesn't say maybe he's coming. He doesn't say until the Baptist Church Committee votes on him, Jesus is going to come back. It says he's coming. He will come. And there's coming a day when he's going to show up. Now, whether you believe the, the, your pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib, I'll debate with that with you another day. The fact that we all agree on is Jesus is coming. How is he coming? He's coming powerfully. All the enemies will stand before him. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's coming visibly. He's not coming Jehovah's Witness style where in 1918 a few select people saw him and then he was invisible and came back. They actually believe that, by the way. He's coming visibly. The skies will split. He will come. He'll be riding on a white horse, and out of his mouth will be a sword. And on his name will be a name that is written that no one will understand. But he will put not his his enemies in a hug. He will put his enemies to shame and to judgment. He is coming visibly. He is coming powerfully. He is coming sovereignly. He doesn't answer to anybody else but himself. He is coming salvifically. Can I use that word? He's coming to take those home who are his. And he is coming imminently, urgently, soon. You say, Darren, when's that time going to come? We just read 2 Peter about 25 minutes ago. One day in the Lord's eyes is what? It's like a thousand years. Yeah. There's a time coming. So what is he telling these people in Hebrews? He's telling them this. Amy, if you will, please. He's telling, he's reminding them, you have not come to Christ. Look back. Remember the gospel you heard. Look ahead. If you believe this gospel, you will have the reward of salvation. But also look up. He's coming again. And he tells them, do not be lulled to sleep by the spirit of this age. Be awake. Be alert. Be ready. If you could have anything, it's hard to look at a church these days and not see what times we are in. We are in the last days, guys. To be very specific, the last days started when Jesus died and resurrected, but we are in the last days. Second Peter, or excuse me, Second uh, Timothy three will tell you that it's only going to get worse from here, day in and day out. We had our men's dinner last night, uh, and we had a, a good discussion about what that looks like. I asked some of the old timers, and again, I'll let them define who the old timers were there last night. Leon was not there, so we couldn't pick on him. Thank you, Leon. But we asked some of the folks who'd been around a while and just asked, have you noticed since your time when you were you know, a little kid to now, has the world changed? 
Yeah, I mean, technologies change, geography, countries have changed, leaders have changed, all that stuff, of course. But has the moral climate of the world changed? Things that used to be not acceptable are now acceptable. And it has changed. And everybody in here will say, I remember a time when you didn't do X, Y, Z, and now it's just common. Guys, the coming of Christ is preceded by an intensifying of craziness in sin that happens. Go read 2 Thessalonians 2. It'll tell you even worse and worse. So what he's telling these guys is, look, he says, you've been listening to the truth. He's coming back and he's going to send you an opportunity to believe in him. But right alongside that is going to come people who want to take you away from the truth. Don't believe them. There is coming, 2 Thessalonians 2, such a great delusion by the Antichrist or the person opposed to Christ that will make even the elect fall away if they could. Jesus' words. You need to look up. You need to believe today. Look back, look ahead, look up. Finally, and this is not psychobabble, he tells them in verse 38 and 39 to look within. To look within. Look back at verse 38. We'll close in these verses. He's quoting again here. Uh, Habakkuk uh, uh, in verse 38 he says but my righteous one shall live by faith and if he shrinks back my soul has no pleasure in him and we'll stop right there what is he referring to here my righteous one shall live by faith he's not telling them to look within and find within them the self courage or the self esteem or the self whatever you know you know what the number one sign of the end times is according to 2 Timothy 3 verse 2 that people will be lovers of selves. Be careful. When someone tells you, if I need to say it again, I've said it a lot of times in this pulpit, someone tells you, oh, you just need to trust your heart. The heart is deceitful above all things, Jeremiah 17, 9. Who can trust it? That is the worst advice you could ever tell someone. Hitler trusted his heart, and that worked out pretty well, didn't it? Be very careful. What is he referring to here? He's telling them to look within, but my righteous one shall live by faith. He's telling these Christians or these, these believers who are these people who think they're believers, these, these people who are around Christians that aren't Christians, who have a full knowledge of the truth, who have a commitment to the truth, who are towing the line of the narrow gate. You get the picture. You need to double check whether you're trusting in the right thing. Because the one who is in Christ trusts by faith alone that they are saved. Not in a pope. Not in a mass, not in a Baptist pastor, not in walking an aisle, not in a pounding pulpit evangelist who tells you to pray a prayer, raise your hand, close your eyes, the buses will wait for you. Have you trusted Jesus Christ alone? That's it. My righteous one will live by faith. To be righteous means that you have turned from your sin and trusted Jesus alone for your salvation. Luther, Martin Luther, the great reformer, called it an alien righteousness. It's something not of our own. Something Christ gave. And may I remind you that Luther was the best of the best of priests. He would get on his knees and he'd walk upstairs. He'd beat himself. He'd literally rip out his hair. He'd do everything he could to please God. And he never had enough until he believed that Jesus alone saved him. And his whole world changed. Was he perfect? No. Did he say some things that were stupid and ignorant? Oh, yes, he did. But God still saved him. To live. This is a warning against those who profess Christ and don't live. That only those who trust in the living Christ. 
Did you notice what he says? God will take no pleasure for those who shrink back. What is he talking about? Do you look at the end of verse 38. Do you see that phrase there? Look at your Bible. Those who shrink back. This is one that God says they will have, he will have no pleasure in. The one who sat under the preaching of the word of God and been brought before heaven, but decided that's not for them. This is not a saved person we're talking about. This is the person in verse 26, verse 29, verse 30, verse 31, etc. The one here has a full knowledge of the truth. If he shrinks back from believing the gospel, God will say, I'm done as well. You need to look within. To quote my brother Dave, who says this verse often, you need to do 2 Corinthians 13.10. You need to examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. Not to find whether you're worthy to be saved. Friend, none of us are worthy to be saved. The question is not that you know Jesus, but does Jesus know you? Because if I go up to use an old illustration to the White House, no matter if it's Trump or Bush or Obama or uh, Biden or Reagan or whoever you got the last 20, 30 years, and I go up and knock on 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and say, I'm here to see President fill in the blank. Well, who are you? I'm Darren. I'm here to see President fill in the blank. Um, nope. Actually, they probably won't even let you get within 100 feet of the, the, the gate anymore, right? But you get the point. You don't just waltz up to the White House, no matter who's in the office, and say, I'm ready to see so-and-so. You have to be invited in. They have to know you. And the same is true with heaven. You don't waltz up to the cross and say, I'm worthy to get there. God, by his grace, reaches out to you and invites you. And he calls all those who are hungry or thirsty or weary or who need salvation to come. He will no wise cast out anyone. Whether you're red, yellow, black, or white, you're strong, you're small, you're smelly, you're stinky, you're you're sultry, you're salty, whatever you are, come to Jesus. He'll take you in. But for those who reject it, he'll shrink back. He has no pleasure. So what's that lead to? It leads to their destruction. There is no peace. Samuel put this up as we close. There's no peace of God until there is peace with God. Think about that for a second. There's no peace. You are at war with God until you know this God. No God, no, in that old phrase, you've seen that shirt before, N-O God, no God, N-O peace, no peace, K-N-O-W, no God, K-N-O-W, peace. Why? Because we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed if you're a Christian, verse 39, but are those who have faith and preserve their souls. That word destroyed is exactly what it means. It is destruction forever in a fiery hell. If you're here today and you're visiting, I promise you this church is the most loving church. We are walking through some hard verses right now. You're visiting for the first time. So grateful you're here. Thank you. You're welcome anytime. I just want you to know we're not we're not ashamed or afraid to preach the word of God. We pray we do it with boldness, with courage, but also with loving kindness and gentleness. Because there are both of those in God's character towards us. But next week, we start through Hebrews 11. Are you ready? Everybody loves Hebrews 11. But you don't get to 11 unless you understand chapter 10. Will you pray with me as we close out today? Thank you for your time. Lord, as we come to you. Father, we've, we have beat the dead, proverbial dead horse many times on this topic in the last several weeks. 
But Father, for those of us who know Jesus, I pray it has increased our adoration, our love, and our appreciation of everything you've done for us. Because Father, apart from you, we have nothing. And we can have no one. But Father, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that when we sin, you take us back. And these aren't fake tears, Lord. This is just true. That you gave your life for us. May we never forget. May we never take it for granted. I don't care what we build around here. I don't care what programs we put in this church. I don't care what we organizationally do. May the love that we have in Christ never break the fellowship of unity here, the mission of purpose here, and the growth of holiness in Christ's name. But Father, we also shed tears today because we know in this room, in our hearts, in our minds, there are people who are of chapter 10 that we've been talking about for several weeks, who know the truth but have not committed to it. Lord, for those of us in this room that know you, would you give us abundant patience and long-suffering. For parents, grandparents, would you give that with our kids or grandkids or grown kids? If they're friends or neighbors, whatever it is, co-workers, Lord, just help us to faithfully love and share the gospel. Help us, Lord. But Father, we thank you that you have not shrunk back from us, but we are those by your grace who preserve and are not destroyed, all because of what Christ did for us. Lord, you're so good. As we sing this last song, may you be praised. We pray in Jesus' name.